The United Nations human rights leader says both Hamas and Israel have committed war crimes in the last month and reiterates his call for a ceasefire. It's Thursday, November 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a recap of the latest Republican presidential debate featuring five candidates, but not former President Donald Trump. Also this hour. Our teachers deserve to be making much more than they're making. And the missing factor here is money. More money could solve these problems. A look at the teacher shortage in Massachusetts Head Start programs and how it's affecting families of students. And a federal report finds a Nicaraguan man who died in an immigration detention center might have lived if he'd seen a doctor. If this patient had come to an emergency department and if somebody had done an ultrasound, they could have been put on blood thinners and their life could have been saved. Celtics lose a chance for rain today in the 40s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israel says its troops are fighting with Hamas militants on the ground in Gaza's largest city. More than 10,500 people have been killed across the Palestinian area in more than a month of attacks. The United Nations Human Rights Chief is calling for a ceasefire and accusing both sides of committing war crimes. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from Tel Aviv. Israel's military says it's fighting through shell-blasted buildings in the north of the Gaza Strip. It says its troops are also battling below ground. There's a vast network of tunnels where Hamas is believed to be holding some of the more than 240 hostages its militants took on October 7th. Palestinian residents say Israeli tanks are moving closer to two hospitals where thousands of displaced people are seeking shelter. The United Nations estimates up to 50,000 people have been able to flee that northern zone on foot but shelters in the south of the Strip are already overcrowded. Meanwhile, officials from some 80 countries are meeting in Paris to try to figure out how to help wounded civilians in Gaza escape. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The World Health Organization, meanwhile, says Palestinians are at risk of diseases because of intense crowding and the lack of access to clean water and sanitation. The WHO says it's already seeing an increase in illnesses, including chickenpox, diarrhea, and upper respiratory illnesses. Officials say young children are most at risk. At the third Republican primary debate, the Israeli-Hamas war was the main topic of the night. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them finish them. And the reason is I worked on this every day when I was at the United Nations. That's Nikki Haley referring to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Five candidates qualified to be on stage, but the front runner, former President Donald Trump, once again skipped the debate, instead holding a rally nearby. China, Ukrainian aid and Social Security were also discussed, but there was little focus on Trump. Congress is once again up against the clock to avert a government shutdown. And Piers Windsor-Johnston has more. Neither the House nor the Senate has agreed on a path forward on a number of provisions, including additional aid for Ukraine and Israel. Justin Crow, a political science professor at Williams College, says coming up with an agreement will be the first big test for newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. Are conservative Republicans specifically going to give Johnson room to negotiate because he's new, because he's one of their own, because they think the long-term benefit of supporting him outweighs the short-term cost of supporting him? Johnson has floated several ideas to his conference, but says the details and next steps of a short-term funding bill remain up in the air. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. On Beacon Hill, House lawmakers have signed off on a budget package that includes money for the state's family shelter system. The $250 million is intended to ease pressure. State officials predict the system will reach its capacity of 7,500 families this week. Once it does, families will be put on a wait list. Part of the deal approved yesterday includes a provision to make overflow sites available within 30 days. But Andrea Park with the Mass Law Reform Institute says that still leaves a gap in the meantime. If that cap is reached, there's a lot of questions from the community and different organizations about where people are going to go. I think people will be returning to the airport, to the hospital, to places where they had received help. Previously. The state Senate is expected to take up its own version of the bill soon. Massachusetts Republicans are celebrating their first special election win in six years. Peter Durant won the race Tuesday for a state Senate seat in central Massachusetts. Mass GOP chairwoman Amy, Amy Carnavali believes this could help her party recruit more candidates for office. Representative Peter Durant, who won the seat, talked a lot about the migrant crisis issue and the effect that that is having on affordability and finances in Massachusetts. That issue remains a a big concern for many voters in the state. Durant's win gives Republicans four of the 40 state Senate seats. Boston Medical Center is increasing security on its campus. Hospital officials tell the Boston Herald loitering has spiked since police cleared the tent encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass. That's the area at the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, which is near the hospital. City officials say they're trying to find overflow housing sites for those forced out before the weather gets bad. Senator Ed Markey is warning about the use of artificial intelligence in health care. Markey chaired a Senate subcommittee hearing on the matter yesterday. He says he wants to regulate how tech companies use AI in the health care industry. Humans insert human bias and discrimination into algorithms that can supercharge existing inequalities in our health care system, jeopardize our privacy and misdiagnose or mistreat patients. Markey wants lawmakers to act now to stop implementation of technologies on patients without their knowledge, as well as more AI testing. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Celtics lost to the Sixers 106-103 to last night in Philadelphia, and the Revolution season came to an end with a 1-0 loss to the Philadelphia Union. A chance for rain throughout the day today. It'll be in the mid-40s. Partly cloudy overnight, it'll be around 40. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and in the 50s. Sunny on Saturday and in the upper 40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C.
And I'm A. Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa, where we're talking to voters who will cast the first Republican ballots at the 2024 presidential nominating contests. Five candidates who want to make inroads here met on a Miami, Florida debate stage last night. The party's frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, was also in South Florida, but he skipped the debate for a rally. NPR's Domenico Montanaro was at the debate in Miami. NPR's Ashley Lopez was at the Trump event in Hialeah. Domenico, let's start with you in Miami. So what are the biggest things that people need to know coming out of the debate? Well, the field really winnowed significantly. Only five people on this stage, as you mentioned, but it might get even smaller than that. Really, there were two tiers here um, with really Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, and Nikki Haley, the South Carolina governor, really standing above the other three candidates. Um, And DeSantis really was energized. Maybe it was a home state sort of thing. Um, He sparred with Haley a little bit on China and energy, but very tame. Um, On substance, you know, This is the first debate since the Israel-Hamas war, and the candidates were very hawkish. Uh, Let's take a listen to some of what they had to say at this debate hosted by NBC News. We will stand with Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. So what I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. America is here, no matter what it is you need at any time, to preserve the state of Israel. Now, Domenico, I mean, things got testy a couple of times. What uh, grabbed you from the night? Yeah, the most testy moment was really when uh, Vivek Ramaswamy decided to kind of go after Nikki Haley, hitting her on foreign policy. Let's listen to how he did that at this debate hosted by NBC News. Do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? Yes, I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, yeah, she also then said that she uses them as ammunition. So you know, it, was a, it was a very testy moment. And it, a lot of people really felt like Ramaswamy went too far um, when he kind of brought uh, Haley's daughter into it later on, uh, talking about how she was on TikTok uh, previously and that uh, Haley hadn't done anything about it. And Haley really took umbrage with that. And I've never heard before in a debate something like this, but Haley said, you could clearly see her say, you're just scum. Now, Ashley Lopez, you were with the one person who was not in that room, the front runner, Donald Trump. Uh, Did Donald Trump talk at all about uh, what was happening uh, near him? He did. I mean, Trump acknowledged the debate that was happening close by, and he sort of shrugged off any of its importance. He said he's clearly on the path to secure the party's nomination and that none of the other candidates on the debate stage stand a chance, which right now is pretty much true. He then set his sights on two of the candidates on the debate stage, that top tier that Domenico was talking about, one of them being Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump talked about how he helped him get elected when he first ran for governor and basically called him a traitor in so many words for now running against him. And not surprisingly, he also started taking aim at former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who has been on the ascent. He had similar things to say about Haley, who he appointed to be his U.N. ambassador when he was in the White House. Now, at uh, Trump's rallies, it's often some of the same things uh, over and over again. Uh, Immigration, opposition to Biden, wokeism, anything new that was uh, said. You know, I think one of the more interesting tangents Trump went on during the rally had to do with age. Trump talked about how Ron DeSantis has sort of branded himself as Trump, but younger, right? And he told the crowd that there's nothing wrong with that, but he personally felt that all the best businessmen he knew and all the smartest people he knew were over 80 as to sort of get ahead of any critiques of his age. I know a man that fought all his life to make money and he became a billionaire from 80 to 90. 
some of the greatest leaders in history have been way over 80. I don't know. I found this pretty interesting because age is currently playing a big role in the upcoming election, right? And Trump has been one of the loudest voices critiquing Biden for his age. So it's interesting that Trump is sort of getting ahead of any similar critique that might come his way. Yeah, Trump and Biden are only a few years apart. Um, Domenico, what was missing from the debate? Anything that you expected to hear but then didn't hear much about? Well, obviously, the biggest thing missing was Trump, (laughs) the (laughs) elephant not in the room. But on the issues, I think abortion was really something that I was surprised came up as late as it did. It didn't come up until about 15, 20 minutes left in the debate and talking about the elections that Republicans lost on Tuesday um, in places like Ohio and Virginia on this issue. And really, the candidates had very few answers to this problem for Republicans in where they're really losing the middle of the electorate. They're not able to really win over swing voters. They've tried with crime as an issue, and it really hasn't served them well to be able to win them over. You know, Tim Scott posed a 15-week ban, something that he, federal ban, something that he hadn't uh, committed to early in the campaign. Uh, Nikki Haley really stuck to this line about consensus, and it's a really interesting line. She's trying to walk there, trying to appeal to the middle, but it doesn't make her look like she has much moral clarity on the subject. Ashley, I've been in Iowa the last few days, and no one seems to be jazzed over any of the candidates. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering at the rally, at Trump's rally, uh, how did people feel about his message and, and the other candidates they have to choose from? Well, rallies like th- like this are obviously where you will find some of Trump's most fervent supporters. So it's not support- surprising that everyone that I talked to isn't interested in any candidates other than Trump either. And because this was Florida, I was curious to see if any of the voters there perhaps supported their governor, Ron DeSantis, at some point and might at least have a positive association with him. But um, I did not find that to be true. That's NPR's Ashley Lopez and NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, you two. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The Associated Press is reporting that negotiators are trying to arrange a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in exchange for the release of hostages who were kidnapped by the militants on October 7th. Meanwhile, Israel seems to be planning for the long term in Gaza. Here's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on ABC this week. I think Israel will, for an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. The Israeli military has escalated its operation in Gaza City, the largest in the Palestinian enclave, and more civilians are fleeing, people walking with what they can carry, some holding up white flags. The United Nations says more than one and a half million Palestinians have been displaced. And despite growing international calls for Israel to protect civilians, many who have survived Israel's bombardment say they fear that Gaza will be permanently occupied and they will be permanently displaced. To discuss all this, we've reached out to retired U.S. Army Colonel Peter Mansour. He was an aide to General David Petraeus, who commanded coalition forces during the Iraq War, and he's now a professor of military history at Ohio State University. Good morning. Good morning. So, Colonel, I want to start with what a long-term military presence would look like in Gaza from Israel. Well, we've seen this before. Israel had a long-term military presence in South Lebanon from 1982 to 1990, and it didn't turn out very well for them. I think uh, the Netanyahu administration has not asked itself the key question, how does this end? And it doesn't end with a military occupation. It ends with a political settlement. And that's something they have not yet addressed. So is it an effective way to, I mean, the stated goal of this war is to eliminate Hamas and uh, and for security. Is this the way to get to those goals? 
Well, let's assume for a moment that uh, Israel is successful in its initial military operation. It will face a, a sullen and, uh, and not very cooperative Palestinian population of around 2 million people. Uh, in the counterinsurgency manual, we wrote that um, uh, a robust counterinsurgency would require 20 to 50 counterinsurgents per every thousand people, and that would equate to about 40,000 to 100,000 Israeli boots on the ground in mm. Gaza for an indefinite period of time. So I, I don't think the uh, Netanyahu administration has really thought this through. Now, you've written about your experience inside the Pentagon as the U.S. struggled to conduct its own offensive in Iraq as the U.S. occupation there came to an end. Your book on this is Surge. What could Israel learn from the time when the U.S. surged troops in Iraq in 2007? Well, in fact, right after my retirement in 2008, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, think tank uh, invited me over to Tel Aviv to kind of pick my brain on what worked during the surge. And this was before CAST led their 2009 invasion of Gaza. And I said, the primary thing that we learned is you have to find willing partners uh, who are willing to reconcile on the other side, people with blood on their hands. You don't negotiate with your friends. They're already your friends. You have to negotiate with your enemies. And of course, we found that with the awakening movement and the tribal revolt against Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And to a person, they kind of looked at me and they said, well, that's not possible with the Palestinians. What else do you have for us? Oh. <laughs> and, and I was just stunned that if they ignored the primary lesson of the surge, they weren't going to get very far with the Palestinian people. So in your view, what needs to happen is they need to find a Palestinian partner in Gaza that is willing to work with them on a political solution. Both in Gaza and on the West Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to find Palestinians who are willing uh, to negotiate and they need to offer them political sovereignty. The Palestinians need a state or in the ashes of Gaza City, Hamas 2.0 will rise up. Uh, and Israel needs to confront this and admit this to itself, uh, or it will simply face this again down the road. So when you say Hamas 2.0, your concern is that an even more violent group will come out of all of this? Well, exactly. So if you recall, when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, Hezbollah didn't exist. Hezbollah was an outgrowth of the Israeli invasion. And so this... Uh, could very well lead to a, a group every bit as uh, dangerous as Hamas. Peter Mansour is a retired U.S. Army colonel and professor of military history at The Ohio State University. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You can visit npr.org slash updates for more coverage and differing views and analysis of the war. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, despite criticism, farmers are pushing for more subsidies from Congress, arguing they've been hurt by low crop prices and poor harvests. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. Fifty years ago, the Philadelphia Orchestra did something no other American orchestra had done. They went to China. It was an effort to thaw relations between both countries, and this week, they returned. Music transcends any kind of politics, any sense of violence in our lives and we want to continue to bring that to all portions of the world our conversation on all things considered from npr news listen again after four today on 90.9 wbur the latest episode of our podcast the common is out today a closer look at the results from tuesday's election wbur reporter walter wuthman breaks down the boston city council results and what it means for the shifting political power in the city Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. There are a few snow showers in the higher elevations this morning. A good chance of rain today will have a high in the mid-40s. Partly cloudy tonight with a low around 40. Mostly cloudy on Friday with a high in the low 50s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere tomorrow. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Paul Matthews is a tenured professor at a small college, but he's not an especially memorable person. He's actually definitely forgettable, sort of boring, kind of schlubby, but somehow he's on a lot of people's minds. The reason that you've been on my mind is because you keep popping up in my dreams. Really? Yeah, like a lot in the last few weeks. It's so strange. You don't do anything. You're just there. And it keeps happening to people he's never met all over the world. Paul Matthews just shows up in their dreams. But soon, those dreams turn dark. That's the concept behind the new film Dream Scenario starring Nicolas Cage. Christopher Borgley is the writer and director. He joins us now. Christopher, okay, so tell us about Paul Matthews. It sounds like and when we see him that he's longing for something more than just being a teacher at a, at a college. So he wants some recognition, it sounds like. Yeah, I think he has some um, delusions of grandeur and feels entitled to academic recognition that he was cheated of. And I think that's the type of character that would welcome the sort of attention, even if it came from a very strange place, like popping up in people's dreams. And that tickles something in him, right? I think like it would anyone else, uh, Christopher, anyone that gets any level of notoriety or fame, it, it tickles this little thing that I think every human being has to want to be known. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a healthy, natural 
desire to have sort of a recognition and, and status within maybe a smaller group, that that's something noble about getting recognized for an achievement. And I think that sort of natural desire has been weaponized against us with the advent of the internet and how many opportunities there are to make a platform for yourself, to uh, be seen and heard. And um, suddenly it's not about a byproduct of achievement. It's just getting seen as uh, end all be all. Um, and I think that's sort of the unhealthy road to kind of an empty calorie version of accomplishment. <laughs> Calm down. Thank you. Who's really here for the lecture on Kent's election? Show of hands. Okay, the rest of you, I'll give you five minutes before I start the lecture, okay? Ask me anything. Yes, you. How does it feel to go viral? <laughs> well, we can discuss that when we get to memetics later this year. Yes, you. Are you going to do, like, Stephen Colbert or anything? <laughs> Not a chance. I actually enjoy my anonymity, if you can believe that. Okay. So yeah. as Paul is clearly enjoying this newfound notoriety, the dreams, or at least his activity in the dreams becomes more erratic. Now, Christopher, I don't want to give too much away, but the nature of his celebrity starts to change as time goes on. Yeah, he starts becoming more active in the dreams in very negative ways. They turn to nightmares. Of course, like living in everyone's head as a sort of Freddy Krueger accidentally starts becoming like a big problem for this guy and, and for his family and for his work and everything. So is this kind of like a commentary on the nature of, on the fickle, I guess, nature of celebrity, right? Because anything can change on a dime and all of a sudden you you can be beloved one moment and then the very next moment be hated. Yeah, I mean, you know, when introducing this concept, this dream phenomenon, I was just thinking, let's pull it out of its typical sort of genre and place it in our sort of very banal current culture. And I was just thinking of how that would play out, all the steps, all the ups and downs, how everyone would have an opinion about it, how capitalism would come in and try to piggyback off of it, and um, how we're just like not able to have a, a conversation about it. It's all becomes very quickly just, are you for or against this thing? They had some bad dreams and now they're not gonna show up for class? I mean, we can't just accept that. I don't know what to do here. I mean, obviously I have to take this student's concern seriously too. Well, yes, of course, but isn't this a bit of an overreaction? They're dreams. It's not real. I'm not actually doing anything to them. As I said before, this is new territory. Um, I think I just need to consult with HR. And the thing is, the people that react to his celebrity at first and as it changes are college students, which in this time, <laughs> they, they tend to react in all kinds of different ways to all kinds of different things. Yeah, they're very uh, opinionated. And I also thought that there is this sort of, I guess, joke about college campuses and, and safe spaces and, you know, snowflake culture. And But I thought, like, let me actually do something that takes the students a little bit more seriously. 
and so when we shot some of these horrible dreams, I wanted them to feel really painful in order to have um, their side of the argument be rational. And like, I would not be able to work <laughs> under a professor that I have constant nightmares about that looks like they do in the movie. When I was writing the movie, I was thinking like, who would not understand this type of massive attention and fumble it? And I was thinking my father, who was a professor, he's the <laughs> sort of comedic setup for how this would go wrong. And I'm not saying my dad would do the things that Paul Matthews, the character, does in the movie, but he would be equally ill-equipped to navigate this delicately. Christopher Borgley is the writer and director of the new film starring Nicolas Cage. It's called Dream Scenario. Christopher, thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR environmental correspondent Barbara Moran poses the question of whether we're trying too hard to comfort people while talking about climate change. It's 7.29. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Monday, November 13th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at WBUR. WBUR.org slash open meetings. WBUR supporters include the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition on view now, ICABoston.org, and Hunger to Health Collaboratory, discussing integrated solutions that advance health equity, November 16th at CitySpace. Register at H2HCollaboratory.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Associated Press reports negotiations are underway for a three-day ceasefire in Gaza. The talks are said to involve the Biden administration, Israel, Egypt, and Qatar. Aid agencies and international organizations are among those attending a conference in Paris. They're expected to discuss a proposal to create a maritime corridor to ship humanitarian aid into Gaza and to evacuate the wounded. That conference was opened earlier today by French President Emmanuel Macron. The International Rescue Committee is warning of potential disease outbreaks in Gaza amid war with Israel. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz is in Tel Aviv. The healthcare system in Gaza is at a near total collapse. More than half of all healthcare facilities are closed. And according to the International Rescue Committee, most of the population has no access to safe and clean water. That poses high risks for the spread of deadly cholera and typhoid. The IRC is demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire so aid workers can provide health care and prevent disease from spreading. Without it, the group says the suffering of Palestinians will continue. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Seoul today following talks with G7 foreign ministers in Japan. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Insurers are urging the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission to do more to rein in high hospital costs. The commission also heard from hospital leaders yesterday on the challenges they're facing. More now from WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The state has a goal of limiting health care spending growth to 3.6 percent a year. But Sarah Islin, chief executive of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, says hospitals are demanding payments well above that target. The benchmark was a profoundly powerful tool when it first came out and was literally in the room with us as we were negotiating contracts with providers. And I'm here to tell you it is not anymore. Hospital executives say they're dealing with unprecedented cost increases due to workforce shortages and inflation. They argue insurers should cut red tape to help reduce costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. State officials may use the Heinz Convention Center in Boston as an overflow shelter site. The conversation comes as the state legislature approved $250 million in funding for the state shelter system. More than a quarter of that money must be used for overflow shelter sites. The Heinz has been used for emergencies before. It was a mass vaccination site during the pandemic. Students at Brockton High School are spending part of their day in a cafeteria with little supervision. That's because the district is experiencing a severe shortage of substitute teachers. School officials tell the Boston Globe upward of 20 teachers a day have been absent. They say the district only has four substitute teachers to fill those absences. School officials say they're looking for ways to hire more subs. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School of Boston. Sign up for preschool and kindergarten open house on November 18th at GISBOS.org. The Celtics lost just their second game of the season last night. They fell to the Sixers 106-103 in Philadelphia. The Seas will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. The playoff run for the New England Revolution is over. They fell to the Philadelphia Union 1-0 last night in Foxborough and were swept in the best-of-three series. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins skate with the New York Islanders. Showers likely today will have temperatures in the mid-40s. Those fall to around 40 tonight and and it'll remain overcast. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and low 50s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. The Biden administration has released the results of an investigation into the death of a man held in an immigration detention center. It's a report the man's family and others have wanted to see for months. It found multiple failures to follow government standards, but stopped short of saying those failures caused his death. The case has sparked protest and raised more questions about how Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, treats immigrants in detention. NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach has been following the case. Tom, first uh, tell us about this uh, person and how did he die? 
Well, his name was Melvin Calero Mendoza. He was 39 years old from Nicaragua, and he crossed into the U.S. in order to seek asylum. This was last year. And while his case was working its way through the courts, ICE held him at a detention center in Colorado. At one point there, he injured his foot, started having severe pain that lasted weeks. And he was seen three times by nurses who prescribed him Tylenol and ibuprofen, but did not order any follow-up tests, according to the report. It does not appear he was ever seen by a doctor. And as it turns out, he had a blood clot that eventually blocked the blood flow to his lungs. One day last October, he suddenly collapsed, hit his head, started struggling to breathe. The facility called 911, and he was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead. All right. So then ICE investigated this. So what did they wind up finding? Well, the investigation found that the facility ignored a high blood pressure reading, failed to conduct a medical screening on time. The investigators did not say those problems contributed to Calero Mendoza's death, but the report does describe one critical moment. This is two weeks before his death. A nurse examined Calero Mendoza. He had intense pain in his legs and feet. Blood oxygen levels were low. Blood pressure was high. And the area where he had pain was warm to the touch. Dr. Parveen Parmar is an ER doctor at the University of Southern California and a professor there. She told me those are all symptoms of a potentially dangerous blood clot that a doctor might have caught. If this patient had come to an emergency department, for example, and if somebody had put this together and done an ultrasound, they could have been put on blood thinners and their life could have been saved. Wow. What does his family say? Well, for more than a year now, they've been just trying to get more information on how and why he died. But ICE delayed the release of the report for months and only released it after members of Congress put pressure on the administration and after getting sued under the Freedom of Information Act by Elizabeth Jordan. She's a lawyer for the family. Here's what she told me. It's inexcusable. The family is deeply frustrated that it has taken this long and taken federal litigation to shake the report loose. It's astonishing. And she said the report completely omits a key part of this case. NPR first obtained a copy of the 911 call made after Calero Mendoza collapsed, which suggested a chaotic response to the emergency. On that call, the detention officer said he did not know the facility's address or how to access the building, and he didn't know what the medical emergency was. I asked ICE why they did not address this 911 call in the report. They declined to answer that or answer any other questions we had about the report. You know, immigration, I'm sure you know, has been uh, an issue for the Biden White House. Where does this case in particular fit in that broader context? Well, the conditions in ICE detention have been a concern for years, but advocates say the government under both Republican and Democratic administrations, including the Biden White House, has generally not supported transparency about the conditions. After fighting in court for more than three years, we at NPR recently obtained a set of secret ICE inspection reports that described, quote, barbaric and negligent conditions, including grimy medical instruments, racist abuse, medical neglect. Inspectors found failures at the same facility where Calero Mendoza died, failures that caused another man's death back in 2017. Experts say they keep seeing the same mistakes and ICE detention made again and again. That's NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach. Tom, thanks. Thank you. Political drama in Washington is delaying passage of a new farm bill, which provides hundreds of billions of dollars for food and agricultural programs. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports. During World War I, farmers grew huge amounts of wheat, answering the call from the government to feed hungry troops and allies. When the war ended in 1918, demand went with it. Prices collapsed and farmers burned their grains as fuel instead of selling it for a low price. 
Many farmers went bankrupt even before endless dust storms started stirring up soil in parts of the Great Plains. The dust bowl. Millions of tons of sand and grit darkened the sky and smothered countless farms. You had this catastrophe on top of the economic catastrophe, which was driving farmers into bankruptcy and out of business. Jonathan Coppice is an ag policy expert at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and says one way the government stepped in was to pay farmers to plant fewer crops, sort of like a business's supply and demand model. If Ford Motor Company is too many cars on the market and it's depressing prices, what do they do? Well, they lay off workers and they close plants and try to bring the supply back down. Ninety years later, the government still wants to help farmers through tough years. But now, instead of controlling supply, the government just pays farmers when crop prices dip below a certain level or revenue goes under a set amount. But it's been a while since prices went low enough for Chris Tanner, a farmer in northwest Kansas, to get one of those checks. I haven't received payment in probably the last four to five years. The reason being is the reference price is far too low. Reference prices are what trigger payments under Title I, the Farm Bill program that sends those checks. They're only set during Farm Bill negotiations every five years, and they're pretty low compared to today's high crop prices and costly farming expenses. Most farmers would go bankrupt before Title I support kicks in, according to Anastasia Meyer, a farm economist with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This is not going to save any farmers if prices really go downhill fast. From his farm in Kansas, Tanner puts it more strongly. Title I does not work. If we don't get the reference price raised, it's not a safety net, it's a safety asphalt. They've been saying that for 40 years. Bruce Babcock is skeptical of raising reference prices after years studying ag policy at Iowa State University. He says it's a waste, especially amid high commodity prices that have boosted farm incomes. Look at the price of corn. Look at the price of soybeans. Look at the price of wheat. Babcock says the Title I money is no strings attached and doesn't even make a big difference in farmers' bottom lines. He wishes it was tied to environmental practices, preventing pollution, investing in butterfly habitats. You know, anything, but we're not getting anything for the billions that we spend on farm programs. Why not buy something for that money? But Coppice, the U of I economist, says there's an argument that Title I protects the food supply in tough years by keeping some farms above the waterline. It's relatively cheap social insurance, kind of ensuring that we're keeping some farms in operation and we shouldn't have the problem. Relatively cheap social insurance that still costs billions annually at a time when some lawmakers demand spending cuts. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. This is NPR News. The news from Israel continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the growing criticism among Israelis of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over his response to the October 7th Hamas attacks. Mid-40s today with showers likely around 40 tonight and skies remain overcast. Low 50s tomorrow and mostly cloudy. It's 38 degrees in Boston. 
WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. And Direct Tire & Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Boston-based Circle Internet Financial may soon go public. Sources with knowledge of the matter tell Bloomberg the cryptocurrency firm is considering an initial public offering in early 2024. Circle tried going public last year, but the deal ended when it merged with a shell corporation. A major expansion project at Brigham and Women's at Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain is celebrating a milestone. Crews will place the last piece of structural steel for the addition today. The project will add 78 new inpatient beds to the hospital. It's the first expansion of its kind for Faulkner in nearly 50 years. Hospital officials expect the project to be ready for patients by August 2025. The first-ever shawarma restaurant in the Boston area has closed. Shawarma King was a fixture in Coolidge Corner, Brookline, for three decades. The owners left a note on the door thanking customers for their business. They did not give a reason for the closure. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Low-income families around the country are having a more difficult time accessing early childhood education. Head Start, the federal program that offers free services to children under age 5, is struggling to find enough teachers. WBUR's Emily piper Valillo reports on how Massachusetts programs are addressing the shortage. Erin Abreu enrolled her 11-month-old in Head Start in 2020. An East Boston center accepted her daughter, Adeline, into its program right away. I was in a shelter, and I was currently working, but I needed help. I needed my daughter to be in a daycare. Abru was able to work longer hours once Adeline was in childcare. They now live in an apartment. Adeline receives healthy meals at her Head Start program. She also receives dental care and spends her days learning numbers and words. She's so smart. She knows how to identify letters. She tells me how her day went in school. She's polite. She's respectful. Like, she's learned most of that here. Abra welcomed a second daughter last year. But this time, she wasn't so lucky. Her younger daughter was placed on a wait list for the same Head Start Center. She's still waiting nearly a year later. The problem is a teacher shortage hitting Head Start Centers nationwide. Massachusetts is no exception. Michelle Hamowitz is the executive director of Massachusetts Head Start. She says a Head Start teacher in the state makes on average $39,000 a year, or half of what they could make in a public school. Our teachers deserve to be making much more than they're making. And the missing factor here is money. More money could solve these problems. Program directors say federal funding for Head Start is not enough to cover operational costs like rent and competitive teacher pay. Head Start programs also need to meet official enrollment targets or they risk losing funding. Since many centers can't find enough teachers, they can't enroll the number of students they say they can on paper. So some program directors feel they have no choice but to permanently lower their enrollment targets and reduce the number of students they serve. Anat Weisenfreund is the agency's director. She says the decision has given her agency the flexibility to increase teacher salaries by more than 25 percent. Some salaries are now as high as $58,000 a year. It's really incredible. We have filled almost all of our vacancies within six weeks 
it's really very simple. You got to pay people a fair and decent wage. Children already in the program will not lose their place, but that still leaves roughly 200 kids on the wait list for now. Weisenfried says the decision was hard but necessary. But it is directly on the backs of children and families by preventing access. Head Start leaders know closing classrooms is not a permanent fix, but they don't anticipate an influx of federal dollars anytime soon. So for now, a better solution remains out of reach. Back at the East Boston Head Start, Erin Abreu's three-year-old daughter Adeline circles up on a fuzzy rug with her classmates. It's a Wednesday afternoon. The toddlers hook their tiny fingers around a large elastic band. They stretch it out and the band expands. They release and it contracts. Big, 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 small, small, small. Ready? But a few doors down, the lights are off and chairs are stacked on desks. A sign pinned to the door explains that this classroom is closed. It's unclear when another space will open up for Adeline's sister and the other kids stuck on the wait list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. Climate scientists talk a lot about the number 1.5 degrees Celsius. They say once the planet warms that much, bad things happen. So we need to do everything we can to avoid crossing that line. But what if that's inevitable? And what if it happens in the next 10 years? The United Nations says that's where we're headed. WBUR's environmental correspondent Barbara Moran spends a lot of time thinking about climate change and how we talk about warming. She's prepared this essay. I remember sitting on my couch, reading the UN's latest climate report. And it completely freaked me out. It was that number, 1.5 degrees Celsius. The report said we'd hit it by the early 2030s. And that means points of no return, like almost all the coral reefs dying, ice sheets getting really wobbly and rising seas drowning some island nations. I thought maybe I was reading the numbers wrong. So at the press conference, releasing the report, I asked about it. Okay, the next question, this is a question from Barbara Moran. Based on the current science, when do you expect the global temperature to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels? One of the report's authors, an Irish scientist named Peter Thorne, answered. He was pretty blunt. Almost irrespective of our emissions choices in the near term, we will probably reach one and a half degrees in the first half of the next decade. He said the real question is whether we overshoot it by a little bit and come back down. Or whether we go blasting through one and a half degrees, go through even two degrees and keep on going. But after the report came out, something weird happened. Most climate scientists and journalists didn't change their tune. They were still saying we could avoid hitting 1.5. They kept saying things like, we need to act now, or it's getting harder, but still technically possible. Technically possible? Like if aliens appear with magic tools that fix climate change? I felt like I was being gaslit by climate scientists. So I called up a few and I asked them, What's the deal? What I heard over and over is that they're telling us, and I think themselves, a story to keep from falling into despair. They're worried that the reality is too depressing to say out loud. They don't want people to give up hope. 
I get it. I do the same thing sometimes. The other day, I was talking to my 13-year-old son about coral reefs and how most of them would probably die. And then I looked up and saw tears in his eyes. So I did what a lot of moms do. I stopped. I told him the coral reefs would be okay, even though I know that's not true. But I just couldn't bear to see him so sad. The climate crisis is really scary. But I don't think obscuring reality is helping anybody. So I'm here to tell climate scientists and my fellow climate journalists to knock it off. If my son and his friends think the coral reefs will be okay, the reefs are doomed. If he knows the truth, maybe he'll become a biologist who tries to save them. When people know what they're up against, a lot of them will be sad. I'm sad. But I think many will rise to the occasion and take action. And I think that's the only way we'll make it. Barbara Moran is a correspondent with WBUR's environmental team. Read her essay and many others on the Ideas and Opinions page at WBUR.org. Coming up at 820 here on WBUR, Iowa is preparing to hold its Republican presidential caucuses on January 15th. We'll hear from voters there about the tone they expect to set for the presidential election year. It's 753. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. I'm Scott Tong. The National Rifle Association has tremendous sway in Washington. Our series on gun culture looks at how the NRA gained so much influence. The most important thing that people have misunderstood is that its power has never been a foregone conclusion. That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Leaders from more than 80 countries will meet today to discuss how to provide aid to civilians trapped in Gaza amid the Israel-Hamas war. House lawmakers have just nine days to reach another spending deal in order to avoid a government shutdown. And the Hollywood actors' strike is ending as SAG-AFTRA and major studios reach a tentative union contract agreement. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Showers are likely today. We'll have temperatures in the mid-40s. Those will only fall a bit to the low 40s tonight, and it'll be overcast. Then for our Friday, mostly cloudy and low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. History was made last night at the Country Music Awards in Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the big winners was a song written more than 30 years ago. You got a fast car, and I want to take it to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. 
Luke Combs' cover of Tracy Chapman's 1988 hit, Fast Car, took home Single of the Year, and Chapman got Song of the Year, making her the first black songwriter win in that category. Here to tell us about some of the highlights from Country's Biggest Night is Julie Height. She covers music for NPR and Nashville Public Radio. So, Julie, some might be uh, surprised to hear that uh, Tracy Chapman got an award for a song that was uh, 35 years old. Tell us more about that. That is true. Yeah, I mean, Luke Combs decided to re-record the song that Tracy Chapman made famous decades ago, probably because it is such a compelling telling of a story of not having much, feeling trapped in a town, plotting to get out. If you're wondering, Tracy Chapman was not present for the awards show last night because she famously is out of the spotlight by her choice. And I think it's interesting. There is a tradition of covers of pop or rock or folk hits later becoming country hits, but there has not been a tradition of country industry awards being given to black songwriters. So that is a huge first indeed. Yeah, Tracy's version was always the best anyway. So there there you go with that. (laughs) All right, so let's get into some of the big winners. Uh, What were the standouts from last night? Yeah, well, I mean, it's significant that Morgan Wallen had a dominant album in all genres, not only country, but did not win album of the year. And Lainey Wilson, it was just her second year of getting nominated, and she won two massive marquee awards. She won album of the year for her album, Bell Bottom Country. And that's an album that actually peaked at number nine on Billboard's top country albums chart. So it wasn't even a number one album. And she also won Entertainer of the Year. She's the first woman since 2011 to win that award. And it's it's very rare for an artist that is still new to the spotlight to win those big awards. She just won New Artist of the Year last year and it already made it her way to Entertainer of the Year. And this year's New Artist of the Year also was notable. It was Jelly Roll, who has quite the belated breakthrough story for years and years He was doing kind of working class white Southern rap mixtapes, self-releasing them often and, you know, living, living through a lot of things, addiction issues and things like that. And then here he is just before turning 30, signing with a country label, leaning into his redemption story and into gospel and arena rock influences. And yeah, do you have do you have the tape of his uh, acceptance speech? Let's see. Do we have that? I think we we do not. We do not. But it was fiery from what I understand. Yes, yes. He went into (laughs) Pentecostal preacher mode and was remarking himself on how notable it was for a 39-year-old artist to win new artist of the year. And he was, yeah, that's that's definitely one to to look up. (laughs) And quickly, Morgan Wallen, right? Empty-handed. Yeah, that that is that is very, very notable that he did not win Entertainer of the Year or Album of the Year for a very, very commercially dominant album. That's Julie Hyde from Nashville Public Radio. Thanks a lot, Julie. You're welcome. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Mid-40s with a good chance of rain today, partly overcast and low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Friday in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business. 
with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pushes back against Israeli plans to remain in Gaza indefinitely, proposing a Palestinian-led government. It's Thursday, November 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, many Israelis are angry about security lapses during the October 7th Hamas attacks, and they're blaming one man. Benjamin Netanyahu cannot stay even one more day on the chair of the prime minister. He is a failure and he must go. Also, a deal has been reached to end the actor's strike that paralyzed Hollywood for months. And this hour, we meet New Hampshire musician Jeff Rapsis. He's realizing two of his childhood dreams by playing live music to accompany silent films. There's nothing but music. It just inhabited me. It was always there, I think, and it finally came to the surface. Celtics lose. Showers likely today in the 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Five Republican primary candidates faced off last night in Miami. Some of the sharpest exchanges of the evening were between former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, Haley's been getting increased attention as her poll numbers rise in early primary states. During a discussion about foreign policy, Ramaswamy appeared to jab at Haley, the only woman in the race, and at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whose thick heel boots have been the subject of some recent speculation in media reports. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first, or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage tonight. thank you. Haley repeatedly highlighted her foreign policy experience. The debate was co-sponsored by the Republican Jewish Coalition and focused heavily on foreign policy issues, including the wars in Israel and Ukraine. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. And delegates at an international conference in France have called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza so more aid can get into the territory. There is no Israeli representation at the meeting, though. Philippe Lazzarini is head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. I was in Gaza last week for the first time since the war started. I visited a UNRWA school sheltering thousands of people. It was heartbreaking. Children used to learn in this school. Today, they plead for a piece of bread and a sip of water. French President Emmanuel Macron says he wants a swift humanitarian pause and he pledged an extra $106 million in aid to Palestinians.
The World Health Organization is warning that in Gaza, the risk of the spread of disease is growing. NPR's Ari Daniel has more. The number of people in Gaza who've been killed and injured continues to rise under ongoing Israeli attacks on the enclave. Combined with overcrowding, poor sanitation, and depleted access to health services and clean water, the WHO says conditions are ripe for infectious diseases to take root. Richard Peepercorn is the WHO representative for the Palestinian territories. WHO calls for an urgent, accelerated access for humanitarian aid, including fuel, water, food, and medical supplies into and throughout the Gaza Strip. The global health body also calls for the release of all hostages and a humanitarian ceasefire. Ari Daniel, NPR News. In world financial markets, Asian markets ended the day in mixed territory. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, gained 1.5%. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong down about three-tenths of a percent. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. Dow futures are up about one-tenth of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The head of the T will outline plans today to remove all of the remaining speed restrictions on the transit system. General Manager Phil Ang will lay out plans at a meeting beginning at this hour. Right now, there are speed restrictions on 23 percent of the T, with most of those being on the red and green lines. Additional funding for the state's emergency shelter system is now in the hands of the Massachusetts Senate. House lawmakers yesterday approved $250 million in funding as part of a supplemental budget bill. The money would support the shelter system through the spring. Senate leaders say their branch will take up its own version of the bill soon. While state lawmakers figure out how to fund the shelter system, social service agencies are preparing for when the state hits its self-imposed cap on the number of families it can serve. Once that cap is hit, families needing a place to stay will be put on a wait list. As WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, there's no designated safe place for families to wait until a unit becomes available. This week, the state announced it's putting $5 million toward helping community groups provide overflow housing. But the funding isn't up and running yet. So Gerald Gabot is preparing for a situation in which families have nowhere to go. She runs the nonprofit Immigrant Family Services Institute. We know that we cannot turn our back on our families. So currently I'm getting a lot of sleeping bags ready. I'm calling as many churches, faith leaders as possible. Gabo says she's collected 20 sleeping bags so far, and she hopes to get 200. As a last resort, she says she's prepared to let people sleep in her organization's offices. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. The last 12 months have been the hottest in recorded history. That's according to data released today by the nonprofit Climate Central. New England isn't the hottest hot spot on Earth, but the region has seen record-breaking temperatures this year. Climate Central researcher Andrew Pershing expects that trend to continue. The fact that we are setting a record this year in some ways is not surprising. We should expect to set records because we live on a warming planet. We have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere more and more every year. That drives temperatures up. Data show average temperatures in Massachusetts have risen about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit since the beginning of the 20th century. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more. 
to bridge science and the humanities. The Celtics lost a close one last night in Philadelphia. They fell to the Sixers 106-103. In Foxborough last night, the season came to an end for the New England Revolution. They were bounced from the playoffs by the Philadelphia Union 1-0. A chance for rain throughout the day today. It'll be in the mid-40s. Partly cloudy overnight, it'll be around 40. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and in the 50s. Sunny on Saturday and in the upper 40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. We turn now to the war in the Middle East. The AP is now reporting negotiations are underway for a days-long ceasefire in Gaza in exchange for the release of several hostages held by Hamas. While officials from more than 50 countries are in Paris for a Gaza aid conference. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization warns the risk of disease in Gaza has soared due to disrupted water and sanitation systems and overcrowded shelters crammed with displaced people. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing mounting political pressure. Many Israelis blame him for security lapses during the October 7th Hamas attack that killed more than 1,400 people. Some are calling for him to resign. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. Noam Tibon is 62, retired, and was swimming in the Mediterranean Sea with his wife on October 7th when they heard sirens. We finished to swim and we get into the car. I got a text message from my son, Amir, which basically said, Dead, there are terrorists around my house. Tibon is a retired major general in Israel's army. He told his son to lock himself in his safe room, and then Tibon grabbed his pistol and drove south towards his son's community. And on my way, I tried the chief of staff, the southern commander or the division commander. I know all of them, but nobody responds to me. Then he got another text from his son. Militants were inside his home. Tibon drove faster, passing bodies on the road south. He finally found some soldiers and asked them to come with him towards the fighting. Their commander said, no, I need permission, I need orders. And at that time, I knew this is a chaos. You know, nobody is giving orders. Tibon says he's never been a political man, but he calls what he witnessed a colossal breakdown of the Israeli security apparatus he devoted his career to. There is one person he blames. Benjamin Netanyahu cannot stay even one more day on the chair of the prime minister. He's a failure and he must go. Tibon says some of Netanyahu's cabinet didn't serve in the military and don't understand security. His attempt to weaken Israeli courts divided people and left the country vulnerable, he says. This month, a municipal official from Netanyahu's Likud party in the south, where the attacks happened, resigned on live TV. I call on all Likud officials to do the same, said Tamir Idan, waving his resignation letter. Netanyahu's defense minister, the military chief of staff, and the head of the domestic security agency have all accepted responsibility. Netanyahu says there will be an investigation, but only after the war. Meanwhile, in the streets... Get out, a slogan from past protests against Netanyahu's judicial reforms, is being repurposed at fresh protests now. Netanyahu's supporters say these are the same left-wing critics and that the Hamas attacks were not the prime minister's fault. 
But a November 3rd poll found 76% of Israelis want Netanyahu to resign. Another poll in late October said his approval rating was lower than at any point since surveys began 20 years ago. Netanyahu recently told reporters, The only thing that I intend to have resign is Hamas. We're going to resign them to the dustbin of history. At a rally in Tel Aviv, Tsipi Haitovsky says she wants Netanyahu to resign immediately. But she says there's a widespread belief, even among Netanyahu's critics, that this is a time for unity, not politics. There's this belief that in, this, in the middle of war you can't change the leadership. And that is what Netanyahu is banking on, says one of his biographers, Mazel Mualem. She says Netanyahu believes he's got a window of opportunity to salvage his legacy while the war is underway, because he knows his premiership is unlikely to survive beyond that. But she also says Netanyahu is a fighter. The more demonized he feels, the harder he fights, she says. Noam Tibon, the veteran who raced south, he fought his way to his son's house. And when he got there... I knock on the window and I said, uh, Amir Abapo, dad is here. And my little granddaughter, three and a half years old, she said, Grandpa came. And you know, <laughs> this was the great moment of my life. His family survived. But Tibon says an immediate change of Israeli leadership is the only way to make sure no other family goes through what he did. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A federal watchdog says they're alarmed by conditions inside a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. The Justice Department's Inspector General's Office conducted an unannounced inspection at the facility in May. Inside, they found what they call serious operational deficiencies. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas sat down with the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, who said the findings signify much bigger problems within the Bureau of Prisons. And Ryan joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. So what did inspectors find at this federal prison in Tallahassee? So they uh, published a report on the federal correctional institution Tallahassee in Florida, as you said. It's a low-security female facility with a lockup for men as well. The inspector general's office did an unannounced inspection there, as you said, in May. And Horowitz told me they found very disturbing problems with the prison's food services. Serving bread with mold on it in the kitchen facility, spoiled uh, food in the warehouses, food with bugs crawling in it evidence of what appeared to be rodent droppings. And there are photographs in the report that document all of those problems. Uh, Horowitz says they also found that Tallahassee has serious understaffing problems. And the inspector general also found that the prison itself was just in bad physical shape. They found roofs that leak, sinks coming off of walls, paint and plaster falling off the walls. Here's Horowitz again. When we go to Tallahassee and we see windows leaking and ceilings leaking onto inmate living space, and we see female inmates having to use feminine hygiene products to keep the water from coming into their space. That's something you should never have to deal with. So he's saying that's something you should never have to deal with. But how common is this problem in the federal prison system? Well, Horowitz says these sorts of problems are pretty consistent across federal prisons. His office, for example, did another unannounced inspection at a federal lockup in Minnesota. There were some of the same issues there. Both facilities has, have roofs that leak and need to be replaced. Neither prison has taken any steps to make that happen. Both facilities are also understaffed. That means guards are working overtime a lot. That means healthcare workers, education workers are being forced to work shifts as guards. And that, of course, uh, affects basic security. 
Now, I imagine there have to be ripple effects from that, too. There are. There are. Horowitz says staffing shortages mean educational and training courses get short shrift, things that are supposed to help inmates when they return to their communities. Healthcare coverage also gets short shrift. Uh, And this points to a bigger issue. Horowitz's office has found that the Bureau of Prisons doesn't know how many people or how much money it even needs. Uh, BOP says it needs $2 billion for upkeep, but it's only been asking Congress for $100 to $200 million a year for that. The Bureau of Prisons' job is to provide a humane, secure environment so inmates are prepared to return to their communities. Is the agency doing that? Well, so just on the fundamental issue of inmate security, there have been massive failures in recent years. Mm. Jeffrey Epstein's suicide, Whitey Bulger's murder, both of those happened in in federal lockups. The former warden, the former chaplain, and several guards at a federal prison uh, in California have been convicted of sexually abusing female inmates. Um, But as for your question, Horowitz told me the BOP is not fulfilling its mission across the board. Some prisons are, some are not. Uh, He also had this to say. It's often been said that you judge a society by how it treats its inmates. By that standard, we're not doing great. Just look at the pictures. Look at the report. He says everybody should want to have prisons that are educating inmates, treating them humanely, with dignity, supporting them so that they don't commit crimes once they're out of prison. That's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. One man continues to hold up hundreds of military appointments. That's Senator Tommy Tuberville. The Alabama Republican has been blocking nearly all nominations since February in protest over a Pentagon abortion policy. His colleagues are fed up and they're starting to get creative about solutions. Here's NPR's Lauren Hodges. If you can't move him, it's time to find a way around him. That seems to be the thinking among many of Senator Tuberville's colleagues. Senate Rules Committee Chair Amy Klobuchar told NPR. Enough is enough. Senator Tuberville had not listened to those that are running our military. And he's not listened to his own Republican colleagues. Among those is Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska, who says he takes this personally as a former Marine. Sullivan told Fox News this week that Tuberville isn't just undermining military readiness, but also morale. If we start driving our best flag officers out of the military, this is going to be viewed as a national security suicide mission. There is generally resistance in the Senate to changing any rules. But Klobuchar says the vocal irritation from Republicans makes her confident they can pass a new temporary resolution, which is scheduled for a committee vote next week. In their current state, Senate rules allow Tuberville to hold up nominations all by himself. But the proposed change, which would need 60 votes to adopt, would work like this. Instead of voting on each military appointment one by one, most of them could pass through at once as a group. And it would only need a simple majority, like all other nominations. Klobuchar says Tuberville has blocked so many positions, more than 370 of them, the Senate doesn't have time to start from the beginning, even if someone got him to back down. There's a spending bill deadline to consider. Because if we voted on them individually, we would literally be going through the year and the government would shut down. Klobuchar says once the Tuberville issue is handled, she'd love to see a permanent rule change, making sure no one person has the power to do something like this again. Lauren Hodges, NPR News, The Capitol. Drought has Arizona regulators limiting where new housing can be built to protect the water supply, but there's a loophole. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the historic months-long actor's strike appears to have come to an end. The actor's union says it has reached a deal with Hollywood Studios. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah. Three performances November 24th through 26th. HandelandHyden.org. And BU's Metropolitan College. Offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. 50 years ago, the Philadelphia Orchestra did something no other American orchestra had done. They went to China. It was an effort to thaw relations between both countries, and this week they returned. Music transcends any kind of politics, any sense of violence in our lives, and we want to continue to bring that to all portions of the world. Our conversation on all things considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. A good chance of rain today. We'll have a high in the mid-40s, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 40, mostly cloudy on Friday with a high in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Right now at WBUR.org, a breakdown of what's called the quintessential Boston accent. Take a right, hot, hot right on there at the lights. You're on Marlboro Street. Go up the back of Marlboro Street. There's parking spaces there that uh, the meter shut off at 6 o'clock so you could save on parking. You won't have to pay the 50 bucks to park in a lot. It's loved by some, mocked by others, and imitated badly often. Sharon Brody breaks down the five things you need to know about the way some Bostonians talk. It's part of our new Field Guide to Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere tomorrow. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And Amy Martinez. Iowa will be holding its first of the nation caucuses a little more than two months from now on January 15th, giving its voters the first crack to set the tone in a presidential election year. We wanted to get a sense of what people there are feeling, so we went. And we started in Sioux County, by the numbers, one of the most conservative in Iowa. The Fruited Plain Cafe is in the city of Sioux Center, just down the street from Dort University. That's where candidate Donald Trump said this. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? We met. Carter King, I'm 20 and I am from Austin, Texas. He's a psychology and theology major. My faith, I would say it's 
everything. I mean, it's the most important thing about me, the, mo the, the very first thing I want to tell people, the, the thing that I want to talk about most. Carter says his faith guides every decision in his life, which includes politics. I feel equipped to discuss political issues and talk about political issues with a lot more open-mindedness, a lot more grace, um, a lot more seeking to understand. But at the same time, we're called to love our neighbor, we're called to be gentle, we're called to be gracious. But gentle and gracious are not words associated with the current political discourse in the U.S. It's a year out from the presidential election, so Carter says he's still open-minded about the candidates. But we were sitting in a county that former President Trump won decisively in 2020, grabbing nearly 82% of the vote, so I had to know what he thought about the current GOP frontrunner. I don't know, he kind of feels like a little bit of a loose cannon right now. You don't really know what you're going to get. We heard a lot of that in the deeply religious farm communities of Northwest Iowa. Since we were just down the street from where Carter goes to school, we decided to hear more from Dort University students about where they stand on Trump. When he lost to Biden, there was like a lot of like stolen election talk, which maybe it happened, but it didn't really seem like it was really stolen. It seemed like he probably just actually lost the election. So I feel like it's not a good look to be whining about that. That's Graham Edmund. I spoke to him at a spot on campus called Jacob's Ladder. It's a center point of sorts where students spill out from classrooms, buy a snack, and meet while sitting on oversized indoor bleacher-style seating. We made our way through the winding hallways of the building and walked into a journalism class. It was communication law and ethics taught by associate professor of journalism, Lee Pitts. So we'll all read First Chapter 1 together. We'll, we'll kind of calibrate our, our ethical compass, so to speak. Philip Shippey is 20 and has lived in Sioux Center for seven years. He's a Republican and next year would be his first time voting in a presidential election, but there's no guarantee Trump will get his vote. Because as much as he's like the big Republican figure, I don't very much like him on a personal level. So what is he looking for in a president? He needed someone to be a president who's willing to reach across the aisle and like compromise and see that the other side does have good ideas. Trump wasn't the only candidate on the minds of Dort University students. Some were intrigued by Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and one expressed interest in independent candidate Robert Kennedy Jr., although all of them did not want another term from Joe Biden. Since we were there on election day, we figured it'd be worth it to find a polling place to ask how voters are feeling about next year. Orange City, Iowa, here we come. The Prairie Winds Event Center in Orange City was where we found folks casting ballots on things ranging from city council to hospital trustee. Sarah Holstein is 38 years old. Now, it was 51 degrees and windy outside of the polling center, but remember, I'm from Los Angeles, and to me, it was bone-chillingly cold, which was a little embarrassing because Sarah was dressed like it was a warm summer day. In my sandals. Um, I've lived here a long time. <laughs> Orange City is the county seat and the largest city in Sioux County. The county is a Republican stronghold, and everyone we spoke to had strong feelings about defending recent conservative wins, such as restricting abortion access, which is pretty tough for Sarah, who described herself as an independent. When you live in a place like Northwest Iowa, there are two sides of the aisle for sure. If you're not on the same side as the majority, there's a potential of being treated as less than. It's very conservative. And if you're not conservative, people on the surface accept you. 
and the rest of things not so much here at least and I think most of those people would say oh no we're not like that but it is the political tensions <laughs> are already high but I would really like to see somebody who can help bridge that divide rather than create a bigger chasm all in all how do you feel about the United States right now I'm really sad it doesn't feel inviting I work for a global company and so I work with people around the world every day and there's not a single person sitting there going I'd really love to go to the Midwest that looks like that's gonna be a great time and it's not just the weather it's not just the people it's all of the things that come with that and I think that we have positioned ourselves in a place where other people and I don't care if people like us. I don't need to be liked. <laughs> but where other people think that we're crazy. <laughs> that's a little scary if we're going to be a world power. Like, I think that's what I worry about. And what, if anything, gives you hope? There are many people who truly want to see things be better. And that gives me a lot of hope. And seeing people actually take action to do that. That was Sarah Holstein, a self-described independent voter from Orange City, Iowa. So, A, you went to one of the most conservative counties in Iowa. A lot of voters still seem undecided about the Republican candidates. What did people tell you about the issues that matter most to them? Biggest issue for most of the people was abortion. But you know what? As far as the candidates go, it was almost like they were dreading, Layla, that they had to kind of get into this again. They, mm. they were like, they like love being blissfully unaware. And now a year out, they're going to have to start studying. And you've got another story on Iowa coming up, right? Right. It's, uh, it's a town called Perry, Iowa, that over the last 30 years has gone through a demographic shift. A lot of Latinos have moved there, which has caused some tension, some culture clashes, but the town has survived because of the influx. That's coming up tomorrow. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we meet a New Hampshire musician who's realizing childhood dreams by traveling the country to provide accompaniment to silent films. It's 829. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. And Trefflers, specializing in the restoration of furniture, decorative arts, paintings, and upholstery by skilled artisans. Custom framing, too, in Newton and at treffler.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The UN's top humanitarian official is among those calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza to allow aid to reach Palestinian civilians. Martin Griffiths addressed an international conference underway in Paris. There's been a lot of discussion about the value of pauses, and I'm not one to un un deny the value of pauses. But that is not the same as a ceasefire which provides a sense of continuity to allow precisely for the re revival of services, the entry of the private sector, and the possibility of the people of Gaza to breathe and consider that they will have a future. This must be our objective and must be our priority.
French President Emmanuel Macron opened the talks in the French capital. The five Republican presidential candidates on stage in Miami last night voiced strong support for Israel in the party's third primary debate. It was the first since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says the candidates did little to separate themselves. You really get the sense that there were really two clear tiers here. You know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, were really at the top of that. And then there was really the rest. Former President Donald Trump did not take part in this latest debate. Instead, he spoke to supporters at a rally in nearby Hialeah, Florida. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The T plans to do away with all of its slow zones by the end of next year. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang unveiled a plan this morning with more specifics expected in the coming months. Right now, the T says there are speed restrictions on 23 percent of the system, with most of them on the red and green lines. Staffing shortages are hurting the state's Head Start program that provides free early education and care for low-income families. WBUR's Emily piper Valillo reports those shortages have forced some Head Start centers to cut slots and put hundreds of kids on wait lists. Early childhood experts pin teacher shortages on low wages, but programs say they can't offer competitive salaries without an influx of federal funding. Michelle Hamowitz is the executive director of Massachusetts Head Start. She says some centers have cut seats in order to find room in their budgets to bump teacher pay. Permanently closing the doors to more children is not something anybody wants to do. And yet our teachers are often living in the same boat. Our average classroom salary is just over $39,000 a year. The resizing at Head Start centers has led to long wait lists in some communities. But kids already enrolled are not impacted. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Emily piper Valillo. Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Boston today. She's set to meet with members of apprenticeship programs. It's part of an effort to highlight the White House's commitment to creating union jobs. The visit coincides with National Apprenticeship Week. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. After starting the season unbeaten, the Celtics have now lost two in a row. They fell to the Sixers 106-103 last night in Philadelphia. The Seas will host the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow. The playoff run came to an end for the New England Revolution last night. They lost to the Philadelphia Union 1-0 in Foxborough. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will take on the New York Islanders. Showers likely today will have temperatures in the mid-40s. Those fall to around 40 tonight, and it'll remain overcast. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station,
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The Hollywood actor strike ended at midnight, 118 days after it began. The union, SAG-AFTRA, reached a tentative new contract with the major studios and streaming companies. Now, members of the union still need to ratify the proposed contract, but now they'll be able to get back to work. Now, just to note, many of us at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but under a different contract, and we were not on strike. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has been covering the actor strike since it began, and she joins us from Los Angeles. Good morning, Mandalit. Good morning, finally. Yes, so what do we know about this agreement? Yeah, well, we're not privy to all the details yet, but the union's negotiating committee is calling it a billion-dollar deal of, quote, extraordinary scope. In a statement, they said the agreement includes increases in compensation, a bonus for participating in streaming shows, and very key to the actors, dancers, voiceover actors, stunt performers, are protections from artificial intelligence. The negotiators say they're thrilled about the deal that they voted for unanimously. And last night at a party after the deal was announced, committee member and actress Sherry Belafonte told The Hollywood Reporter that she was especially proud of the AI protections. This was monumental. We could not have done this without the solidarity, the support, and the love that we felt from the picket lines. So throughout the strikes, things seemed pretty tense between the union and major studios and streamers, right? That's true. The studios and streaming company heads originally said the actors and the writers' demands were not realistic and too expensive, and union leaders chastised the executives for being greedy. But as the strike dragged on, the executives seemed less fiery and more interested in getting a deal done, and they stepped in to personally bargain with the union hours before the deal was announced. This is what Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff and Disney CEO Bob Iger had to say. We recognize that we need our creative partners to feel valued and rewarded and look forward to both sides getting back to the business of telling great stories. Obviously, we'd like to try to preserve a summer of films. The entire industry is focused on that. We don't have much time to do that. So many film premieres have been delayed because of the strikes and the upcoming TV season had been in jeopardy. It's not clear how long it will take to start productions again, but a lot of people are raring to go. But on the other hand, there may be far fewer TV shows for the actors to be in. Mm. What are union members saying about the deal? Well, from what I've seen, relief that it's finally over. SAG after President Fran Drescher hopped on social media to celebrate the victory, and so did the members of the negotiating committee. Actors Zach Efron found out the news at last night's premiere of the wrestling movie The Iron Claw. I'm so happy that we're all able to come to an agreement. Let's get back to work. Let's go. I'm so stoked. So what happens now? Well, the union leaders have to send the tentative contract to the national board, and then their 160,000 members will vote whether or not to ratify it. But already union leaders ended the strike last night and said no one will be picketing anymore. NPR culture correspondent Mandalit Del Barco in Los Angeles. Thanks, Mandalit. Thank you. California has one of the worst housing shortages in the country. It's also got another big problem, wildfires. And that's leading to a heated debate on where to safely build new homes. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk went to one community confronting that conundrum. Van Collinsworth is the kind of person who drives around a neighborhood and sees fire danger everywhere. 
Yeah, I see things. And in fact, when I comment, my wife tells me not to. (laughs) His day job is doing wildfire inspections at homes around San Diego, making sure they've cleared flammable brush. So he knows his hometown of Santee, California, is at risk. Its neat suburban homes are next to dry hills. Well, the flames came over these hills that are closest to us. The city barely escaped the Cedar Fire in 2003. Now a new development is being planned here, right on the outskirts for almost 3,000 homes. It's known as Fenita Ranch. Collinsworth has been fighting the project for years. He also directs an environmental group called Preserve Wild Santee. With only two roads out of the development, he says it won't be enough to evacuate thousands of people quickly if a wildfire hits. I don't think developers and decision makers are willing to acknowledge that we are living in a new era of extreme weather and really grapple with what that means for the desire to just build and build and build. That feeling came up at the Santee City Council meeting to consider the development. How many speaker slips do we have? Like from resident Lee Shannon. Can you really guarantee that people's lives will not be put in jeopardy? I don't care what you build. It'll burn. But there was another take on the issue, like from Justin Schlafly. How are we going to afford to live in the city if we don't build housing? I'm worried about neighbors. I'm worried about friends, family members. California has some of the highest housing prices in the country, and cities are facing requirements to build more to help boost the housing supply. Ken Aiden is a senior vice president at HomeFed Corporation, the developer of Finita Ranch. He says the project will be built with wildfire in mind. We're not building, you know, wood-shingled homes. We're basically doing the opposite. Homes would be built out of fire-resistant materials and have fire sprinklers. Residents would get inspections twice per year to make sure their flammable vegetation is cleared. Vegetation would also be cleared on the outskirts, creating a buffer. We've learned through those tough lessons from the other fires the things we need to do and believe that we can create a great community and help solve the California housing shortage. The city approved the development in 2020, and Collinsworth and other environmental groups sued to stop it. A judge agreed, saying the developer needed to analyze how long a wildfire evacuation would take. Aiden says they've developed a phased approach. They will identify certain streets and then use the uh, reverse 911 and other tools to evacuate those streets one at a time on an orderly basis. Last year, the Santee City Council approved the development again, and Collinsworth filed another lawsuit, which will be heard next year. Catherine Mock studies climate risk at the University of Miami. She says it's hard for city councils to even consider limiting growth. If you're a local government, of course you want to develop. You're building a community. You're bringing people to a region. Oftentimes there's the pragmatic dimension of you need the property taxes from that development that is occurring. As the climate gets hotter, it's vital to put homes and infrastructure in safer places, she says. But with about a quarter of California at high risk of burning, that doesn't leave a lot of space. If we have learned something over this last decade of the changing climate across the United States is that there is no place that is the safe place to build. It is really a question of how do we choose to build. Since cities are largely on their own for making that choice, California legislators have tried to step in. A number of bills to create rules about building in high-risk areas have failed in the last few years amid pushback from the building industry. Next year, legislators will consider another bill that would require developers to create wildfire and evacuation plans before they break ground. Lauren Summer, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report delves into Martin Scorsese's film, Killers of the Flower Moon. It recounts the murder of Osage people after their land was found to be oil-rich. Mid-40s today with showers likely, around 40 tonight, and skies remain overcast. Low 50s tomorrow and mostly cloudy. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, shares in Boston-based Clavio are down 15 percent in pre-market trading. That's a nearly $1 billion loss in value. The drop comes just one day after the marketing tech firm posted its first financial results since it went public. The company's report showed it lost nearly $300 million in revenue in its third quarter. A Lakeville Country Club is headed to auction following foreclosure. The 162-acre LeBaron Hills Country Club includes an 18-hole golf course. It also has a bar, restaurant, and gym on site. The Boston Business Journal reports it'll go up for sale next month. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We usually think of silent films as being, well, silent. But during the silent film era, musicians found dependable gigs in film accompaniment. For one New Hampshire musician, revived interest in silent films has him crisscrossing New England all year round. And as WBUR's Amelia Mason reports, it's helped him achieve a boyhood dream. Jeff Rapsis is setting up for a silent film screening at the Jane Pickens Theater in Newport, Rhode Island. These are two speakers, my trusty Roland speakers that have been with me since 2006. Rapsis is preparing to accompany the 1925 film The Phantom of the Opera. He stations his Korg synthesizer at the front of the theater. The instrument is heavy and not very durable. Rapsis has had to replace it twice. But there's just nothing like the Korg, he says. So if you press it lightly, that'll trigger one setting. If you press it really heavily, that'll trigger maybe the fourth setting. Rapsis explains how he accompanies a film like Phantom of the Opera. He says it's not what you play, but how you play it. So you can go as simple from major, you know, to minor. You can use tempo. The Korg's plastic keys click as Rapsis demonstrates how he can make the same passage sound suspenseful. Or dreamy. Rapsis' love of silent films goes all the way back to his childhood in Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, I was a uh, weird child. He remembers seeing silent films in middle school study hall and being completely transfixed. It was around this time, too, that he became obsessed with classical music. It was nothing but music. It just inhabited me. It was always there, I think, and it finally came to the surface when it discovered me or I discovered it. I, I couldn't tell you. Rapsis decided he wanted to become a composer. He set his heart on attending the Boston University Tanglewood Institute, where musical giants like Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copland taught. But 
he didn't get in. And it devastated me at the time. Um, I guess it's the downside of being sensitive about such things. It allows you to do a lot, but it also inhibits you. And at the time, I just had nowhere to go and no one to ask about or to guide me, and I just gave it up. Rapsis put aside his dream of becoming a musician, but he never lost his love for silent films. One day, years later, he convinced a local theater to screen The Phantom of the Opera on Halloween, and he offered to do the music for it. He planned to write a score over the summer. Well, summer melted away, September comes and goes, and the next thing I know, it's like coming up this week, and I haven't done a thing to put together a score that I'm supposed to play on this instrument. I had some ideas, but I knew I was going to have to kind of wing it. Well, I'll never let that happen again, you know, I vowed to myself as I go into the theater. And what happened was a revelation. And that night I realized this, you know, I should have been doing this a long time ago because it was an environment in which I could do what I did best, which is to come up with stuff in an improvisational fashion, but in a way that supported something else. It turned out he was tapping into an old tradition. In the early days of silent cinema, films didn't come with pre-written scores. A local musician might improvise the entire soundtrack in real time. It's rare to see someone doing that today. But improvisation is what Rapsis does best, and it keeps him really busy, averaging two gigs a week on top of his day job as the executive director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. In this way, he's fulfilled his boyhood aspirations after all. If you had asked me to predict this, there's no way I could have done it. I, I thought that train had left the station decades ago. I never thought I'd be in a position to be doing my own music my way in Boston, of all places, you know, where I, I guess I originally aspired to be a music student. Um, instead, here I, I go to Harvard now and do a film score, and they pay me for it. I go to Harvard, but they pay me. If you're here to experience the, the magic and grandeur of Andrew Lloyd Webber, you will sadly be disappointed. <laughs> At the theater in Newport, Rapsis gives a little speech before the screening of Phantom of the Opera. He explains how this innovative early horror film caused audiences to literally scream when they first saw the phantom remove his mask. And what happens, that's your cue. That's your cue. Let me hear it on count of three. One, two, three. This is how silent films are meant to be experienced, Rapsis says. Not at home on your couch, but in a room full of people and a guy working the keys. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Amelia Mason. Jeff Rapsis performs at the Somerville Theater on Sunday. He'll accompany the silent film The Big Parade. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll look at claims by indigenous people in Kenya that the government is illegally removing them from their land. And the record breaking Australian surfer, she just rode a 43 foot wave. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm Scott Tong. The National Rifle Association has tremendous sway in Washington. Our series on gun culture looks at how the NRA gained so much influence. The most important thing that people have misunderstood is that its power 
has never been a foregone conclusion. That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is pushing back against Israeli plans to remain in Gaza after the war, saying there should be a Palestinian-led government there. A new report finds that the past 12 months were the hottest ever recorded on Earth. And the general manager of the T says the subway system will do away with all of its slow zones by the end of next year. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Showers are likely today. We'll have temperatures in the mid-40s. Those will fall only a bit to the low 40s tonight, and it'll be overcast. Then for our Friday, mostly cloudy and low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Who's listed as rich and who is not in Congress? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Live Oak Bank, helping savvy businesses optimize their high-yield online savings accounts. Rate information is at liveoakbank.com radio. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. On many lists, Republican Michael McCall of Texas is the richest member of the House of Representatives, a net worth of $125 million by one estimate, in large part from his spouse, a founder of iHeartRadio. Not the richest man in the House by his own account, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. On Johnson's official financial disclosure, he lists no bank or retirement account. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. Under assets on Speaker Johnson's most recent financial disclosure report for 2022, it says none disclosed, no retirement plan, no mutual funds, no bank account. Actually, the Speaker's office told me he does have a personal bank account, but it's exempt from House reporting rules because it doesn't earn interest. Jordan Libowitz, spokesman for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or Crew, says... It could be that he's just essentially living hand to mouth. It's paycheck to paycheck. And so it goes into a checking account, it goes right out of it. Libowitz says congressional ethics rules only require disclosure if a member of Congress has total deposits in interest-bearing accounts worth more than $5,000. Speaker Johnson did disclose several debts, including a mortgage. As he told Fox News last weekend, We have four kids, five now, that are very active and have kids in in graduate school, law school, undergraduate. Um, We have a lot of expenses. Jordan Libowitz of Crew says if members of Congress are living paycheck to paycheck, they can be vulnerable to things like influence buying, although Libowitz is not saying that's the case with Johnson. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Again, movie, TV, and streaming production could restart soon after a tentative contract deal last night in the Hollywood Performers Strike. Marketplace morning podcast if you miss our coverage on the air today. S&P and Dow futures are both up two-tenths percent now. For the NASDAQ, it's up just slightly. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 
and buy Total Wine and more, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and more. Drink responsibly. B21. This month for Econ Extra Credit, not a documentary, but a feature film based on the historical record. We're watching Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters now. Members of the Osage Nation had been forced onto agriculturally poor land that turned out to be oil-rich. The film tells the story from the 1920s of a reign of terror faced by Osage people at the hands of exploiters and murderers taking their wealth. To help us with some key concepts from this history, we turn to Gene Dennison, a citizen of the Osage Nation and co-director of the Center for American Indian and Indigenous Studies at the University of Washington. Welcome. Thank you so much. Now, Professor, you're generally all right with this feature film, even if something like that can't tell the whole story? Killers of the Flower Moon is such an important story in that it tells a story that is legally not allowed to be told in our public schools in Oklahoma right now, a story about race and a story about colonialism and something that our teachers would literally be fired for in the state. I do think, though, that there's some real challenges that you can see that develop in the film in terms of not having Osages be the ones who tell the story. Osages are represented as a dying race, as a group of people who are being overcome by colonial histories and colonial processes and are not represented in ways that show how creative and strategic we really are and have always been. Let's zoom into some terms that come up in the film that are crucial. First of all, a head right. So the head right is this fascinating system that was created by the United States government to take the Osage and turn us into a corporation model. And so the head right is, is an artifact of that. There was an allotment system that happened in 1906 for the Osage Nation. And we advocated throughout all of these processes. You can see Osage is constantly trying to navigate the very complicated situations and make them as good for ourselves as we possibly could. So we advocated that none of our land be allotted to non-Osages. And we advocated that we maintain the mineral estate as a national commodity for the Osage Nation rather than as something that was going to go out to individuals. And so the head right um, came to represent your share in this larger oil production. When I read the book first, before seeing the film, this term guardianship is a key concept, a shocking concept. It's curious to see if the film addresses guardianship. Uh, it does. Uh, it does repeatedly. Uh, what is guardianship in the terms of the film? What we see with guardianship happening is the assumption that the Osage people are not competent to manage their own affairs. You know, you have this moment in time where you have all of these corrupt people taking advantage of the fact that the federal government has created a void of justice in the Osage Nation. Instead of facilitating us to be able to make our own justice systems again, what the federal government does is not blame the people that are coming in or punish the people that are coming in, but instead says, Osages, you, you can't handle your own affairs yourselves. Clearly, you need somebody to come in and protect you. And it was a system, this guardianship system, that was ripe for intense abuse. I mean, it was at the center of really an industry of exploitation. Yeah, absolutely. And it was this system that was really tailor-made to exploit Osages, tailor-made to 
concentrate wealth. In fact, I would say that the Osage Reign of Terror is really a logical response to federal Indian policies and what they set up in the context of the Osage Nation. Jean Dennison is a professor at the University of Washington. She's also author of the book Colonial Entanglement, Constituting a 21st Century Osage Nation. Professor, thank you very much for this. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Professor Dennison also writes about the film in Time magazine. Tomorrow, on many of our outlets, we also discuss how the Osage Nation has persevered and adopted a new constitution back in 2006. Econ Extra Credit, follow along with our teachable moments drawn from our film viewing. Sign up free via marketplace.org slash newsletters. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. We are from APM. American Public Media. Mid-40s with a good chance of rain today, partly overcast and low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy Friday in the low 50s. Then we should have clear skies all weekend. It'll be sunny and in the upper 40s for Veterans Day. Sunday, sunny again and in the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.